0: Hi, I'm David Naaman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast's success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankine, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash between the covers or to com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program.
1: These stories are about the id only
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. It would be hard to overstate the accomplishments of today's guest, nor their influence upon and importance to the world of literature at large. Ursula K. Le Guin is the author of more than 60 books of fiction, fantasy, children's literature, poetry, drama, criticism, and translation. Her awards include a National Book Award, a Penn Malamude, six Nebulas, five Hugos, and 21 Locus Awards, from her 1973 Lathe of Heaven to her 2010 Cheek by Jowl, the most by any writer to date. In 2000, the Library of Congress named Le Guin a living legend for her significant contributions to America's cultural heritage. And in 2014, Le Guin was awarded the Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters by the National Book Foundation, whose past winners include Toni Morrison, John Ashbery, and Joan Didion. Le Guin's books, their unique blend of sociology, psychology, and anthropology have always been politically and morally engaged works, from the gender-fluid world of 1969's Left Hand of Darkness to a retelling of Virgil's Aeneid from the perspective of a nearly voiceless female character in her 2008 novel, Lavinia. Le Guin is also active and figures prominently in the community of writers in the world, She's one of the founding members of Literary Arts here in Portland, along with Ken Kesey, William Stafford, and Brian Booth. And writers from Neil Gaiman, Zadie Smith, David Mitchell, and Salman Rushdie have cited Le Guin as a major influence on their work. Ursula K. Le Guin has also made the news quite a bit lately. In 2008, Occupy Oakland activists fashioned Shields to appear like the cover of her anarchist utopian classic The Dispossessed, in 2009, Le Guin publicly resigned from the Authors Guild to protest the settlement with Google, getting hundreds of authors to join her in petitioning a federal judge to exempt the U.S. from the settlement that would allow Google to digitize books with disregard to copyright. And most recently in 2014, in what has been characterized as the most ferocious speech in National Book Foundation history, Ursula Le Guin used the acceptance speech as an opportunity to lambast the deepening corporatization, and commodification of books and their authors by the likes of Amazon. Le Guin's thoughtful, principled, and progressive insights are also evident in her approach to teaching the craft of writing, and it is this topic she is here to talk about today. Her 1998 classic Steering the Craft has been revised and rewritten, and this new edition, Steering the Craft, a 21st century guide to sailing the sea of story, out this month from Mariner Books, has been hailed as a book that deserves to have a place on every writer's shelf and was called by Library Journal in their starred review, a must-read for intermediate and advanced writers of fiction and memoir. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ursula K. Le Guin. Thank you, David. So, Ursula, the, the original edition was a classic in the field of of the craft of of writing, but after 10 years of being out in the world, y- you realized that it needed to be revised or you wanted to revise it, yeah. that enough had changed in the publishing world and in the yeah. world of writers, that it needed a new life. Tell, tell us about what had changed and, and what's different about the new edition of Steering the Craft.
1: Well, it's it's, it's the same book, but every single sentence was rewritten. And par- part of it was just that I had... Uh, I was ten, twelve years older, and looked back on some of the things I said and thought, "That's not quite right." I, 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 I can say that better. Also, I got feedback from people who used the book, uh, like about the exercises and so on, and that was really good. So I could, I could use, you know, reader feedback. And then there was this whole, essentially, sort of revolution that, that has overturned publishing. As it existed, even in the late '90s, when when the book was written, and we're all sort of uh, really out at sea now on that one, not knowing quite what's going to happen next. And so, some of the old advice that one always gave to young writers is just no good anymore. Oh. Uh, it's it's kind of you know uh, steer, steering one's craft these days. Really, it's nobody quite knows where they're going, including the publishers. Well, you say at the beginning
0: of Steering the Craft, it's a handbook for storytellers. Mm-hmm. And yet it, it's not so much geared towards the beginning storyteller. It's for people who are <laughs> who are already engaged in working on their craft with some dedication. What, what distinguishes <laughs> it as a craft book for people who are maybe a little farther along in writing than someone who's just starting?
1: Well, it, for one thing, it, it simply doesn't. Do all the you you can write sort of encouragement yeah. thing. Um, it grew it grew out of a workshop at Flight of the Mind, and the people in that workshop were all committed writers already. Many hadn't published. That's that's not the point. It's the commitment that counts. And so I just sort of assume that commitment in the book, and that you're really interested, not so much in being a success as a writer or something or just being a writer, as in writing well. Do, do, telling your story the, the best you can. And it is, it's is—it's lovely how people respond to that. Hmm. And that, that is what they want.
0: One of the things that I think is really interesting about the book is you don't shy away from using imitation as a way to learn to write. And that's something very common in other fields. Painters, hmm. obviously... Uh, probably dancers and other art forms are always imitating in order to find their voice and, and to hone their craft. But it's something that writers traditionally have seemed a little shy or or a little worried about.
1: Maybe not traditionally, but sort of 20th century. Uh, The thing is with writing, it, it gets confused with plagiarism. Uh, People uh imitation in the arts has to be seen by the person doing it as a learning device and the particularly the internet has confused an awful lot of people and and competition in college for writing papers uh plagiarism is sort of blurred into imitation, and of course they're 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 totally different things, so they have different purpose you imitate only to learn and you don't publish it or if you do you say this is an imitation of Hemingway or something you know but it, it it got all blurred and so a lot of teachers began to really scold people for imitating in fiction in or in writing and and that's that's you know that's kind of foolish cuz you 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 have to learn by reading good stuff and trying to write that way they're you know a piano player who never heard any other piano players how would he know what to do we're we're kind of not we're not using imitation uh as it could be used i think
0: yeah that's a good point you open the book with the importance of sound the sound of language you say is where it all begins, and that language at its core is is a physical thing. Can Can you talk a little bit about the importance of sound f- for you and in relationship to storytelling?
1: I, I hear I hear what I write. I started writing poetry when I, I started writing real, really young. You know, when I learned to write, I started writing, uh, and I've always heard it in my head, and I realized that. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of people who write about writing really don't seem to hear it. They don't listen to it. Um, and there, there's a kind of theoreticalness about the, what they talk about, the length of sentences and stuff. It's all more sort of intellectual. But if, you, if, if, it's, if it's happening in, in your body, if you're hearing what you write, you're going, to, you're going to hear the right cadence of the sentence, which will help the sentence run clear and what young writers always talk about, finding their voice. Well, you can't find your own voice unless you're listening for it. And the sound of your writing may be leading you into something that you that, uh I think most of our writing, our teaching of writing kind of ignores it. Hmm. Except maybe when people read poetry and then they listen to the sound of it. But prose, they, they forget that, you know, there's prose that goes clunk, clunk, clunk. There's an awful lot of it.
0: You you have this wonderful quote from your talk at uh, Literary Arts and Lectures in 2000. I'm just going to read it back. Beneath memory and experience, beneath imagination and invention, beneath words there are rhythms to which memory and imagination and words all move. The writer's job is to go down deep enough to feel that rhythm and let it move memory and imagination to find the words. And I think you were saying this in relationship to uh, Virginia Woolf.
1: I, that is essentially something that I learned consciously from Virginia Woolf, who talks about it in similar terms, her, her phrase, the wave in the mind.
0: And you've, you cite Virginia as as a um, perhaps the best example of the use of rhythm, I believe, in steering the she,
1: craft. She's just a, an amazing example of the use of a, of a long and subtle rhythm. In prose,
0: hmm.
1: but there are many, many others. I I, I did an essay about essentially the rhythm of Tolkien's writing in *The Lord of the Rings*. There are short rhythms and long rhythms, and they, they there's a cyclical repetition in his work, which I think is part of why it totally enchants so many of us. We, we just caught we're caught in the rhythm, and we're happy there
0: another Another thing that I think makes steering the craft a, a standout book is both your um, emphasis of knowing grammar of knowing grammar terminology and also your interrogation of it at the same time. So you stress the importance of knowing grammar terminology and not dismissing punctuation because these are the the tools of our of our craft as as writers, yet many writers I think are shy away from these tools talk a little bit about about yeah. punctuation and grammar
1: my generation and for a while after i was born in 1929 we were taught in public school we were taught grammar right from the start and, we, and everybody kind of went huh you know, somebody pretty good, bad bad back you know but all the same it was quietly drilled into us and we knew the we knew the names of the parts of speech and we had a kind of working acquaintance with English which they don't get in school anymore in most schools um, there's so there's so much less reading in schools and there's very little teaching of grammar and for a writer this is kind of like uh, being thrown into a a carpenter's shop without ever having learned the names of the tools or handled them consciously. Uh you know, what do you do with a Phillips screwdriver? What is a Phillips screwdriver? Uh, so it's it's we're not equipping people to write. We're sort of saying, you too can write, anybody can write, you can write, just sit down and do it. You know but um you gotta have the toolbox.
0: You talk in the book about the usefulness of diagramming sentences. That in diagramming sentences, sometimes you discover what the skele- that the sentences have skeletons. Now,
1: I was not taught that in school. That was the previous generation. My <laughs> mother and my great aunt could diagram a sentence, and they showed me how. And uh, having that kind of mind, I enjoyed it. Yeah. But and it is uh, for anybody who has that kind of mind. It's illuminating just to see it is kind of like drawing the skeleton of a horse. Oh, that's how they hang together, you know.
0: Well, it's also interesting to think of sentences having skeletons and thus, in a sense, being different animals, which would then go back to the idea of rhythm and sound because they would all walk differently. They
1: each has a a different gait. Right.
0: Right. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Ursula K. Le Guin about her revised and rewritten craft book, Steering the Craft, a 21st Century Guide to Sailing the Sea of Story. Well, every so often in Steering the Craft, you have an opinion piece. And one of my favorites is about morality and grammar. And you talk about how morality and language are linked, but how morality and correctness are not the same thing. And we often confuse morality and correctness in the realm of, of grammar. Can you talk a little bit about, about that?
1: Yeah. Let's well, where... What, somebody else gave me this phrase for, for the grammar bullies. Um, they tend to write in – you read them in places like the New York Times and so on and they tell you what is correct and what – and you you know, you must never use hopefully. Like hopefully we'll be going there on Tuesday. You That's incorrect and wrong and you are an, actually basically a sort of an ignorant pig if you say it. Well, this is this judgmentalism, and what the game that's being played there is, is a game of social class. I'm sorry, uh, it has nothing to do with the, with the morality of writing and speaking and thinking clearly, which, well, Orwell, for instance, talked about so well. Um, it's just uh, affirming uh, I'm from a higher class than you are, and. Uh, the trouble is that people who aren't taught grammar and such very well in school fall for these statements from these pundits delivered with vast authority from above, you know. And so I'm kind of fighting that. It's, it's, you know, it's a, a, a very interesting case in point is using they uh, for singular and how this is Wrong, 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 and, and offends the the grammar bullies enormously. Well, th- it was a rule that was invented basically in the 18th century. It didn't exist in English before. Shakespeare used they instead of he or she. Um, we all have always done it in speaking, in colloquial English. And it, it took the women's movement to sort of bring it back into written English. But it's important. See, there, there's a, a kind of crossroads between the correctness, bullying, and the uh, the moral use of language. If if he is the only, if he includes she, but she doesn't include he, you're <laughs> a big statement's being made. No, mm-hmm. well, we got they. Why not use it?
0: <laughs> well, this this difference between grammatical correctness and um the way language engages moral questions is interesting it it raises um it reminds me of this quote that you've said um we can't restructure society without restructuring the english language so essentially the the battle is at at the sentence level as much as it is in the world oh yeah, oh, yeah.
1: and that again i read george orwell's great essay i can't remember what it's called the, the one about about writing english clearly being a political matter I read that as a freshman in college and it went real deep into me. So often I'm simply rephrasing Orwell. Well and,
0: and it's reflected in your in your work as well like I think of the Dispossessed which is the the novel about an anarchist utopia and there's no property but there's also no possessive pronouns. So there there's a way in which the world and the language of the world are reflecting back in a in a sort of unison.
1: They in the novel, the, the the founders of this anarchist society made up a new language because they realized that using the old one was you you couldn't have this society and that language. So they obviously did, they based the, the new language on the old one, but they they changed it enormously, which is simply a, a kind of an illustration of what what Orwell was saying, I think.
0: So lots of these rules that are really rules of correctness, which sort of reflect back maybe some regressive tendencies in society, um, you call fake rules. And so in a, as on the one hand, steering the craft really, um, talks about the, the importance of really engaging with our tools, like using punctuation, understanding its power and understanding grammar, but also not falling for these fake rules. And, and you mentioned one around the generic pronoun he for both men mm-hmm. and women. Yeah. And, um, and the way that is an example of erasing women at the sentence level, um, and I also remember reading that you, um, if you could rewrite Left Hand of Darkness, your your book that was that is, way ahead of its time and and gen and about gender fluidity, you would make some different changes on the sentence level. Is that true? Would you would you make some changes
1: around the use of pronouns and? Obviously, it's unsatisfactory to call these genderless people he all the way through the book as I do uh, unless one of them goes into camera and has gender and then it becomes genuinely he or she you cannot use they that way that that would be totally confusing uh, I, and made up pronouns drive me mad when the book soon after the book was written particularly in the 80s there were several books written with made up pronouns um and I just can't I can't do that to English. But what do you do? I I've tried this and that. I rewrote a short story and a chapter of Left Hand of Darkness, simply making everybody she instead of he. And it's very interesting to read it after having read the the he version, you know. But it's not right either, because they aren't she. They they're they. <laughs> you know. But but we and we can't do it. So I just envy I, the uh, the Finnish, and I think that the Japanese, at least in some respects, can speak genderlessly, mm-hmm. and so I'm just envious.
0: Yeah. Well, to look at this micro and macro issue, if we're looking at changing language and changing society, you've, you've also raised uh, concerns about the ways in which women writers get disappeared from the conversation, mm. particularly when it, it comes to... Um, Entering or not entering the canon, and I think in one conversation, someone asked you for examples, and and you'd mentioned Grace Paley, if I remember, as a possible person who may be sliding yeah, out of the conversation. I, I
1: fear for for Grace's reputation uh, because it is so it happens so often that a writer who's very much admired but never uh, was not really really uh, bestseller famous, you know, that. However, admired by many, many critics and all that. But she just slides out of sight so yeah. fast and is, the place is filled by a man. Well, nobody, no man could possibly fill Grace Paley's place because she wrote extraordinarily much as a woman. Uh, and that may be part of the problem. I don't know. It was interesting
0: I had when I had Joe Walton on the show we we engaged this conversation mm-hmm. and she was saying you know it's difficult in any given moment to know whether often it's difficult in any given moment to know when sexism is happening but if you step back and look at the way the canon is formed say in science fiction and fantasy she said let's look at William Gibson when he wrote Neuromancer won the Hugo and many other mm-hmm. awards and around the same time CJ Cherry also won the Hugo, I think, the year before. Seemed to be informing the conversation. Won a Hugo again six or seven years later. Um, seemed just as successful. And now you look back and Gibson's in the canon and a lot of people are, who is C.J.
1: Cherry? That's true. That's a, Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. What, yeah, what, why, why has she been reprinted? Why isn't she talked about? there There is something slightly mysterious about this. I mean it's not always just simple sort of male prejudice there There is something else at work about how men work together without women <laughs> and i i don't know but I don't know I can't take that any further, yeah.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Ursula K. Le Guin about her revised and rewritten craft book for writers, Steering the Craft, a 21st Century Guide to Sailing the Sea of Story. Well, you've been an outspoken critic, Ursula, of the continued commodification of books and the commodification of the authors of the books and how sales departments are are taking over from editorial. So a lot of the choices in how a book ends up being shaped and changed are less about art and more about Commerce, in in a way, I feel like steering the craft is plays a subtle role that that pushes back against that. In the sense that it really expands the way literature um, can be viewed, not just in terms of what's in vogue. So you you you're not against the choices that are in vogue necessarily, but you you try to expand the conversation when uh, when there's a popular. Uh, choice such as present tense or very short sentences um, you you both look at the limitations of those choices, but give plenty of examples of of long histories of other choices w- would you say that 's true
1: yeah uh, it's uh, there are advantages and disadvantages to living a very long time is have. but one of them is you, you do you can 't help getting a long view you 've just seen it you 've seen it come and seen it go. And, and you, you can recognize a sort of trendy thing that is being announced as the absolute way you must write. And, you know, it's fairly visibly, well, that's the way to write right now if you want to sell right now to a right now editor. But there is also the long run. And yeah. I guess my book is kind of stands for the long run in writing rather than the the short term. term. Instant saleability.
0: Right. Uh, I really loved your, your discussion of the costs and benefits, the trade-off between past tense and present tense. And obviously a lot of people are writing more recently in the present tense, um, and the past tense has a much longer history. But you talk about the way um, the past allows for a referring back and forth in time and space that is more um, mimicking the way our, our minds and our memories work.
1: Yeah, and and is particularly connected to telling a a big story, a story with with some real depth. That's a, that is one of the major issues that I really wanted to uh, rewrite the old, the first edition of, of Steering the Craft was that point particularly, which I had sort of sounded off on, and thought about a lot. Uh, I was a bit snarky about. And it's a very complicated issue. Using, I mean, obviously, present tense has, has certain uses that are just it's it's wonderful for. But the, it, it is kind of being adopted blindly as the only way to tell a story by young people who haven't read very much. And I'm just kind of saying, oh, you know, it's one way to tell a story, but it's not a very good way to tell uh, certain stories. It, it it can be extremely limiting. I, I call it flashlight focus. Mm-hmm. You 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 know. Well, for, sh- for you, sure. You see a spot ahead of you, and it's kind of dark all around it, and that's great for like uh, high suspense, high drama, cut to the chase writing. That's terrific. But if you uh, you want to tell a big long story, well, I can. Okay, I'm I've been reading Elena Ferrante. I am reading Jane Smiley's book, which moves year by year from 1920 up into the 50s. Uh, writing that in the present tense would be maddening to read. And yet it's it's very present. Each, each, each scene, okay, you're in 1932, you're in 1932, it's the present time. It could be written in the present tense, but it wouldn't work. Because it would be this flashlight focus instead of this sense of, uh, including past time, future time, and even the scenery around. Um, it's it's, it's it, but it's, it took me a lot of thinking to arrive at what I said in this book, hmm. and that you know that may not yet be final. I never think what I think is final because I'm always finding out something else.
0: I would definitely encourage writers to look at your book reviews also as as places where they can see your craft thought in context of a specific given piece of art. And in and, and regards to present tense, I, I have a quote here from your review of David Mitchell's The Bone Clocks, which it's a great review because you, you talk about Virginia Woolf and Stream of Consciousness and, the, and David Mitchell's Stream of Consciousness. And, but you also talk about some interesting uh, issues around time. And here, here's what you said in that one. Here in a novel deeply concerned with time, there is virtually no past tense. Present tense narration is now taken for granted by many fiction writers because everything they read, from internet news to texting, is in the present tense. But at this great length, it can be hard going. Past tense narration easily implies previous times and extends into the misty reaches of the subjunctive, the conditional, the future. But the pretense of a continuous eyewitness account admits little relativity of times, little connection between events. The present tense is a narrow beam flashlight. In the dark, limiting the view to the next step now, 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 no past, no future, the world of the infant, of the animal, perhaps of the immortal that that just seems so wonderfully wonderfully put good
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah well stephen Mitchell is a is a writer worth writing about, oh david you know, mitchell, you know, yeah Dave, david, yeah yeah,
0: he he's, is for sure, you know,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, um well, let's talk a little bit about point of view, another area that's much more popular today is the choice of um, first-person point of view. Uh, it's very common, but you walk us through in steering the craft the history of first-person point of view.
1: Well, and a third-person limited is also
0: very popular, is,
1: which is very similar to first-person. Uh, you get one one point of view only. Yeah, yeah, uh, and those one or the other of those does seem to be uh, over and over the only point of view used. In fiction, yeah,
0: but it's actually pretty late in the history of literature that these points of view arise mm-hmm. for first person, yeah, particularly. But,
1: but, it seems to have been Henry James that really kind of did the the, the, the limited third person uh, is sort of the way to do it. And of course, he 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 milked that cow very successfully. And, yes, and and it's a it's a great cow. It still gives lots of milk. You know, it's just that again, I think uh, young writers kind of get. Get told and, and then what they read, if they read only contemporary stuff, they don't realize that there are uh, – that point of view in in a story is very important in that it can be very movable. And there's where I, of course, suggest reading people like Virginia Woolf, like in To the Lighthouse, to see what she does by moving from mind to mind. Hmm or to read Tolstoy's War and Peace, for goodness sakes. Wow. And when he'd, he'd slide from from one point of view to another, without your knowing that you've changed point of view exact consciously, I mean, he, he does it so gracefully that you know where you are, you know whose eyes you're seeing through, but you don't have any sense of being jerked from place to place. That's, you know, that's mastery of a craft.
0: And and that example is a good one of how steering the craft puts um, omniscient point of view as a legitimate a choice
1: um, on the Any table. Any of us who grew up reading 19th century fiction or 18th century fiction uh, are are perfectly at home with what's called omniscient. Um, I, I, I call it authorial because omniscient sounds judgmental to me. Oh, the author is omniscient and that's not good, you know. And, I've, you know, it's used that way. So it all it means is that the, the author after all the author is the author of all these characters the the maker the inventor the in fact all the characters are the author if you come right down to the honest truth of it and the author has a perfect right to know what they're thinking if the author doesn't tell you what they're thinking why <laughs> you know i mean these things are worth thinking about uh often it's simply to uh Spin out suspense by not telling you what the author knows. Well, that's legitimate. This is art. But I'm just, I'm trying to get people to think about their choices here because there's so many choices, beautiful choices that are kind of going unused. Hmm. But the thing is, it's in a way first person or limited third are the easiest ones.
0: And you you mentioned that when you were involved in in writing workshops that one of the most common problems was what you called inconsistent point of view oh. in writing. T- tell us a little bit about what you what you mean by that.
1: Well, that's when you, you shift from one point of, from inside one person's mind to inside another person's mind. The way Tolstoy and 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 uh, Wolf do so splendidly. You do it awkwardly, or you do it without even knowing you're doing it that's with younger writers usually. they just don't realize that they they were in aunt jane 's mind in this paragraph in the next paragraph we're suddenly inside uncle herbert 's mind, and how did we get there um, and then they then they shift out again oh the, the thing about point of view is awareness. Uh, and if you're going to change it, it takes intense awareness and a certain amount of practice and skill at at shifting. But then, if you do, then you see you're you're you're, you're getting binocular or much more than binocular vision instead of a single view of an event. Uh, you can do what? Uh, oh, uh, what's the movie? The Japanese movie where you see a murder from.
0: Oh, Rashomon?
1: Rashomon, yeah. yeah. You can do Rashomon without moving uh, and retelling the story the way Rashomon does four times. Yeah. You can do it as you tell the story. So you get these different points of view and that can lead to uh, real uh, puzzlement as to what is, what is really going on or it can lead to greater clarity. It depends on what you want to do with it. Right. But, I mean, I think in a way the authorial point of view is the most flexible and kind of useful of all the points of view because it's the freest.
0: It wasn't until reading Steering the Craft that I realized just how experimental uh, Charles Dickens' Bleak House was. You <laughs> you brought that up not as a necessarily as a text to emulate but just to show um, – some of the radical choices that he made, both in terms of alternating point of view and alternating tense, yeah, in
1: that book, yeah, because there uh, half the book is is written in the present tense, which is very unusual at, at, at that period, and it is those 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 are the passages written in the authorial point of view only it 's sort of a uh, almost uh, like an eagle eye, it's these views of London, and the, the, the mud or the fog. or something. It's an extraordinary book. Hmm. We're talking today to hmm. Ursula K. Le Guin about her
0: book, Steering the Craft, a 21st Century Guide to Sailing the Sea of Story. Another area that is uh, really rich in this book that also is about l- language and society and how they intersect is is you're talking about modernist writing manuals, and you say, modernist writing manuals often conflate story with conflict. And I've heard this over and over myself, too, um, from writing teachers. Uh, tell us what you mean by this confusion that's happening in contemporary uh, writing education about conflict and story being the same and how that's that's problematic.
1: Well, if you say that 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 that's what story is about is is conflict and that plot must be based on conflict you are limiting your view of the world very severely and in a sense you are making a, what could be called a political statement about it is that that life is simply conflict and nothing else uh, and that's all that, that really matters. So that's what a drama or a story is going to be about. And I'm just, you know, I, this is simply untrue. There are stories that are about reconciliation. Uh, there are stories that, that really have no conflict in them because that's not what they're about. Life is not all a battle. This is a sort of social Darwinist thing it's also very masculine i'm sorry conflict of course is part of life and, and if you try to keep it out of your story that's not what i'm saying it's just that it isn't it isn't what stories are about it's part of <laughs> stories are about a lot of different things
0: and it's amazing how we fall so quickly into battle metaphors and just common speech about almost anything at this
1: point. Uh yeah. And here here I actually do sort of grind some political axes a good deal in various ways because I, I do try to avoid I've come to try to avoid talking about the fight to do such and such or the battle for such and such or, you know, the fight against it. Put everything into Conflict and uh, immediate violent resolution uh, because I do not see that existence works that way. Um, I'm trying to think if Lao Tzu, from whom I learned a great deal, Dao the, the Te Ching. I'm trying to think what he, what he says about conflict. He tends to sort of reduce it to, to the battlefield. The conflict belongs on the battlefield, uh, but the the conduct of life uh, may not involve it at all. Hmm. Anyway, the this kind of preaching that that story is conflict, and where's the conflict in your story? <laughs> you know, uh, this this needs some thinking about, and,
0: and that even. Is raised in your very positive review of Salman Rushdie's latest book, um, where you 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 raise the concern that the dark genie, the destructive forces, are are uh, intertwined inextricably with uh, creativity.
1: That's the the very end of the book. There, there's this sort of the suggestion that that if 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 we don't if we aren't forever at war, we will be appeasable and boring and dull and not do anything, which. Um, well that all I can say is that's not my experience of war and peace Uh, I was a kid during the second world war and um, uh, a period of all out war like that is not a period in which creativity gets much play um it coming out from from that war was like coming out of a very dark place into an open world where oh my God you can do something else besides think about the war and and the war effort and fight you know we this our American adoration of of battle uh, has gone pretty far and and really needs some rethinking.
0: Well, uh, on another subject, I, I wanted to say you, you've been a defender of science fiction and fantasy, but I find myself – I don't know if that's a battle metaphor itself. But <laughs> you've been definitely an advocate of science fiction and fantasy being just as much literature as realist or mimetic fiction or, or, mm-hmm. or memoir. Um, and, and at one time you even said um, fake realism – is the escapism of our time, which I think is such a great quote. Uh, but could you, could you walk us through? Uh, I, I don't remember what talk I was listening to of yours, but some of the lineage for for fantasy, uh, you'd gone back to the Mahabharata and the Beowulf, and
1: um, oh, just just I, I was kind of sort of saying that that possibly the oldest form of literature is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it begins in myths and legends and hero stories. Um, you know stories of discovery and so on. Some are, are real, or, but they tend to get imaginified more and more, and to become fantastic. And so you get the Odyssey or something. Um, that I think that battle—if it's a battle—that that whole thing of reading genre fiction out of literature, I think the that's done with. I, I, it's hard for me to stop talking in those terms because it was such a long struggle to argue that, no, genre is liter- literature just as much as The Grapes of Wrath is. Uh, most of it isn't as good. but Most of realism isn't as good as The Grapes of Wrath either. Right. Uh, but that this ju- judgment by genre is just wrong and stupid and wasteful. And I think that I think just most people know that now, and they're, they're, you know parts of academia and so on are going to go on sort of defending the modernist realist canon, but is gone
0: so so the seventies article you wrote why Americans are afraid of dragons, which you reiterated in in two thousand that we were still afraid of dragons, that maybe perhaps we're we're coming to terms with dragons in in America a little bit now
1: yes and no. Because that that goes on. That's a wider thing than just the genre uh, literature argument. A, a fear of using the imagination is very deep in America, and and it shows in our in our teaching, uh, where apparently uh, kids uh, read less and less and less fiction. And I'm not sure they get any poetry mostly anymore. You know, we were we were fed quite a lot of. Of fiction and poetry as kids in school and even memorized poetry and stuff. Do they do any of that now? Is there, how do they exercise the imagination? I don't know. Hmm. But, but so I shouldn't talk about it because I don't know.
0: Well, one way in which I feel like Steering the Craft enters this conversation uh, and complicates things in a good way is that you you very omnivorously quote from Virginia Woolf and Mark Twain and, and Charles Dickens, but also from Margaret Atwood and J.R. Tolkien, and then also from Native tales like the the story of the Thunder Badger as examples of different techniques. Mm-hmm. And you fluidly move from these different worlds, which is also you can see in in your own fiction that the, these influences. But I, it feels in a way like you're making a a, a statement in the craft book that these are all literatures.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So. And uh, I think both in this book and, and I find, uh, you know, I'm doing this sort of a workshop in narrative fiction um, at Bookview Cafe online. Uh, over and over, I want to send people to read uh, Patrick O'Brien, the, his sea stories, uh, people who are afraid of long sentences uh people who don't know how to describe action they say how how do i describe a uh, you know well if you want to see how to write a sea battle you go to o'brien he is an incredibly good action writer what is he doing i i don't really know but he's certainly worth studying anyway so th- yeah you know within genre you can find marvelous examples of writing hmm. and i guess so uh, sea stories about the Napoleon period. What's that? Historical sea C- stories. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of battles. Much conflict. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, sp- speaking
0: of, of conflict in your, and your mentioning of Lao Tzu earlier, you, mm-hmm. you've you you've been very interested in Taoism and in Buddhism over your career and have done your own uh, version of the Tao Te Ching, your own translation of it. Um how do you see that influencing your writing? Um if at all? I mean are you able to articulate a way in which you um feel those are influencing the story? It goes so
1: deep that it that it's hard to articulate for me and, and uh I'm not very good at analyzing my own writing. But uh in a book like um uh, The Light of Heaven is the is the kind of obvious example of uh, using a Taoist way of approach to life, and uh, also, although I didn't use the the uh, the I to write the book, the way Phil Dick did to to write the Man in the High Castle, um, th- there's that sense of uh, continuous change and and that the change can just happen just in in, in my book it happens by dreaming uh, so that everything becomes you you don't quite know whether you are in a world well, is a dream or is it real you know uh, that that's the book where you can see all that sort of asian influence uh, most clearly on the surface i think hmm. but it seems to uh, the sense of that everything is always moving and changing. And that to me, if you want to say what story is about, story is about change. Hmm.
0: Well, there's, I may be reading too much into this quote, but I wondered if this felt to me like it evokes something from, from Buddhist philosophy, perhaps around the relationship of self to art. Uh, you, You say that some people see art as a matter of control I see it mostly as a matter of self-control. It's like this. In me, there's a story that wants to be told. It is my end. I am its means. If I can keep myself, my ego, my wishes and opinions, my mental junk out of the way and find the focus of the story and follow the story, the story will tell itself. That feels to me like a very different approach than this. I, this uh, an approach of willfulness to put Something down on the page.
1: That yeah, that is fairly Taoistic That in other words, that's wu wei. That's doing by not doing. Mm-hmm. And it seems very passive. And and of course, Lao Tzu strikes the Western uh, conflict-oriented mind as incredibly passive. You, sort of, you know, uh, you know, don't do something; just sit there. Uh, <laughs> but of course, that's that's where he's so tricky and and so useful. Uh, <laughs> there's different ways of just sitting there <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's for sure you you have uh exercises with each chapter and they all have great names like chastity the expository lump crowding and leaping uh, do you have do you have a favorite one uh, among the
1: exercises well as i say in the book a chastity is when i invented when i was i think a 14 and realized that my writing my attempts to write stories they were they weren't exactly flowery but there were too many words and a lot of the words were adjectives and adverbs ending in L-Y. And and sort of – so I, <laughs> I deliberately tried to write a whole page of narrative without any adjectives or adverbs at all. And it gets very tough because uh, it, it's words like only or then – uh, you know, are they, they're kind of adverbial. So sometimes you, you, you can't cut them all out, but you can certainly cut out all the L-Y words and all the lovely, rich, juicy adjectives. And you end up with a very chaste, plain piece of prose, which sometimes you think, oh, wow, you know. Because you have to put all that into the verbs and the nouns, it 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 gets actually stronger and richer. So it's it just is um uh, and it is the exercise I think I've used it in almost every workshop I ever taught. Hmm. And people just hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but if they don't hate it as bad as they as they hate the, the last one, which is where you take a piece of your writing and cut it in half. Uh yeah. not, you know, that and that means to leave it saying the same things but with half as many words. Right. And that one is, but it's very useful.
0: (laughs) You mentioned that you just recently started an online writing Mm -hmm. uh, engagement with, with, with writers. Uh, And also I'm wondering if maybe your own personal biography is, could be a source of inspiration for people who are, who are reading Steering the Craft and trying to find their feet as, as writers that, At least, the, tell me if I'm I'm wrong. But it, it took you quite a while at the beginning oh, uh, yeah. of writing and submitting right. before you saw yeah. any actual tangible success. C- could you talk about that that period? Um, how long it was? Um, what what you were doing and 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 the uh, lack of success before the success?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm actually I'm finding that in doing this this little workshop thing that I it probably is useful for me. Now at the end of my career, to to tell people some some of what I went through, Uh it seems sort of egoistic, but but I think it is of real interest and value to them to know, you know, the the setbacks and the awful self doubts that I think most writers go through, because uh, so so many of them are plagued by you know doubt that they really can do it, and God knows I was all through. Uh, And starting out, uh, I was able to place some poems every now and then in little tiny poetry magazines, you know, with eight or nine readers, but at least you're in print. But I couldn't sell any fiction for, I think, it must have been six or seven years that I was more or less methodically sending out short stories and writing novels and trying to place them and got nowhere got lots of nice rejection letters. Uh, and the fact is, I was very committed to being a writer, to, to my writing, and I had a kind of self-confidence or arrogance that carried me through. I know that. I am going to do it, and I'm going to do it my way. Uh, and I stuck to that, and bang, finally, I broke through. I sold two stories in one week, one to a commercial magazine, one to a Little literary magazine. And it is funny how that even the first little crack, the door opens like that. It seems like it's open and then up again. And it, of course, it guides you as a writer to know where to submit your work from now. I realized that uh, fantasy and science fiction could read my stories and not say, What is this? Fantasy or science fiction or something like that, we'll publish it. You know, they, there was an open mind there that I hadn't met, because I always was a little bit tending towards the slightly unrealistic. Uh, you know, I, I I placed my story in an invented country or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And you had this breakthrough.
1: And a breakthrough. From then on, slowly but fairly steadily, I began to get the breaks. And and and. But of course, I I was. Uh, I faithfully sent, submitted work, which is hard work. Um, and you see, that's one of the things where I'm not quite sure how to talk to people about it now because it's so different on the with the existence of the internet mm-hmm. and e-publication and self-publication. I am, I can't say I'm even in two minds about self-publication. I'm just trying to figure out what it really involves and where it really gets you as a writer. If if you self-publish without any network of publicity, of making your work known, and if you don't sell yourself to, to advertisers, I just don't know. I don't know what the... It, it's, it's kind of wonderful to be able to see your work in print. Goodness knows. But how much good is that if... Nobody's reading it outside your, your peer group or your relatives, you know. Right. I don't know. It's this is where this is where I don't think anybody has very much advice to give anybody at this point. We just have to figure out how publishing is going to settle down after this revolution. Mm. As it will. Well, it was a pleasure having you on between the covers today, Ursula. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: We yeah. are talking today to Ursula K. LeGuin the author of the book, Steering the Craft, a 21st century guide to sailing the sea of story. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.